When you are a bear of very little brain, and you think of things, you find sometimes that a thing which seemed very thingish inside you is quite different when it gets out into the open and has other people looking at it. A quote from Winnie the Pooh by A. A. Milne. Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Episode 82, Pills. First flight out, 6 a.m. to Trieste, Italy, had Jenna Finn aboard. High in the air above the clouds looming over North America and subsequently the Atlantic Ocean, Jen had a lot to think about. She wasn't in the least bit interested in Fa's offer, or proposition as he called it. But why was that? She started her journey in search of an answer to the biggest questions of life. Miles seemed confident he'd found them. He was willing, more than willing, to share his kingdom of knowledge with her. All she needed to do was accept the offer. Down the pill. Like something out of the Matrix. She resisted. Jen wasn't quite sure she could pin down her prime rationale for rejecting Miles' offer. There were plenty of reasons to choose from. How could she gauge which was paramount? Jen might not be able to make a final distinction, but we can. Jen was always going to reject Miles' offer. He could have offered her the resurrection of all those she missed most. Lorna von Schloss, Tiff, Mary Margaret, Joseph Further, Recep Heller, Marshall Winston. He could offer all this, undo any of Jen's boo-boos along the way. And she still would have said no. Truth is, Jen was done with her adventure. While perhaps not going so far as to have actually solved the world, Jen had learned much. She'd spied out the deep myths of creation and seen the color of their souls. More than that, long ago she'd set out to discover whether Leviathan was real. That quest had come to a conclusion. She'd seen the watery beast with her own eyes. She'd felt Leviathan's quakes just under the surface. Leviathan was the destroyer, the ender of worlds. That was her role. Itamar Levi had gotten that part wrong. She wasn't the protector of the seas, quite the opposite. She was the devourer. All this knowledge at the ends of the earth finally laid itself bare for Jen. And yet, there was nothing fulfilling in the final retrieval of the mystery. Jen was still left undone, without a purpose. How could all this myth, a creator man spurned forever by his first creation, lead only to more chaos?
Jen didn't know the answers to those questions. All she knew for certain was the void in her heart. That's why she decided to become plebeian, with a new face which, it should be stated, broadened her nose only slightly yet resulted in a clearly uglier visage and a new identity, Jen sought out regular Joe work. Staying with Atticus and company wouldn't suffice. Their town was too small. So she moved to the big city. New Orleans was left yet uninhabited, so the only big town left in Louisiana was Shreveport in the north. Once there, Jen found quick employment at a casino. The building was old, the ownership new. Chance Casino, one of many owned and operated by the South African self-made investor, Nixon Chance. Despite the odd name, Nixon was a lady of quite good repute. Her story goes well beyond the pages of Solve the World, however, so we must not spend much time analyzing her, her fortune, and her motivations moving forward. Suffice it to say, in the coming years, Nixon Chance's financial empire would inflate, her influence doubly so. She'd have the United Nations eating out of her hand by the end of the decade. History books would come to think of her as the prime architect of the rebuilding and restoration of the world economy after the plague and the bombs. Again, for our purposes, one only need know that Nixon Chance bought up and reopened a series of casinos across the earth in the wake of World War III. Jennifer Dash, a.k.a. Jenna Finn, was a prime recipient of Chance's ambition. Jen started as a server. She'd go around serving free drinks all night long. It wasn't the most luxurious experience, but it was work. It paid the bills. After a couple months working the lines in Shreveport, Betty came to live with Jen. And for a short season, life was swell. Serving beers to slot machine addicts can only be endured for so long. Jenna Finn actively sought out a promotion. She began working with cards. Every day before or after work, she'd befriend the card dealers and took on various unofficial apprenticeships. Six months into her stay, Jen got the call. There was an opening for a novice card dealer at another one of Nixon Chance's casinos. This one was far away, though, across the ocean. Jen didn't care where it was. She'd move to Timbuktu if need be. Portoroj, Slovenia. That was the location. Slovenia barely had two million people in it before the plague. Now, it boasted closer to 200,000. One-tenth of what they were. Nine-tenths of a whole people group. Just gone. Nevertheless, Portoroj, a tourist town nestled on the east coast of the Adriatic, stood as a major hub for migrants and as a traffic stop for the rest of the Balkans. People migrated all about, not just north or south. Everyone went everywhere. Folks tended to return to the roots, have Syrian heritage, but endured the plagues in Sweden. As soon as the dust settled, you were taking your family back to Syria. If you were a, say, Lithuanian doing business and living in South America, instinct spindled through your blood, and you decided to head home, often through the small nation of Slovenia on the way. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the posh, newly remodeled Chance Casino? A sign of the new world's exuberance moving forward with some gorgeous Adriatic view suites to boot. Your luck has to change for the better soon, right? Why can't lady luck shine on you for once? And why can't that happen at a casino? Sounds like justice to me. Sounds like a plan. Jenna mostly dealt at a Baccarat table. She liked it, a lot. Jennifer Dash had a natural knack for cards. 
The idea of dealing out cards stoically whilst getting to watch a player's fate unspool was also eternally scintillating to Jen, known as Jenna. In this way, then, Jenna's life was good. The Trieste airport is just 45 minutes from Jenna's flat, and only 20 from the Italy-Slovenia border. Her friends Petra and Nate picked her up. Jenna met Nate at work. He was an even better card dealer than she was, and from day one made her laugh with his impressive card tricks. His humor fit Jenna's, so the two got along sparklingly well. Petra, Nate's girlfriend, was far more rambunctious and active than Jenna's workmate. While he tended to mope, she was all energy and action. The two fit well together, a yin and yang relationship. Jenna liked each in equal measure. She'd confessed the bare essentials to them both about Atticus, that they had something of an on-again, off-again relationship, and that Jenna needed to go to his wedding to get closure. Most of that wasn't a lie, but she told the twosome the story in such a scandalous manner that Jenna felt herself a liar. They wanted to know all the details on the car ride back. Jenna was happy to oblige. I have known your pain and forgotten it. Just not the details about the resurgence of the man in black, Miles Fogg. Waiting patiently in Jenna's flat was none other than big, fluffy, white Gandalf. He jumped up on his hind paws and reached up with all his might to lick his master stupid. Jenna had always wanted a companion, and Gandalf fit the bill like no one else. He was the perfect compatriot. Slovenia is a great country to have a dog, as it's eminently walkable, with thousands of smells to intake and abuse, with very few snakes to worry about. Plus, Gandalf loved to swim. On mornings when she wasn't working, Jenna would strut down to the rocky shore, wherein an over-eager Gandalf, named after the wizard because of the resemblance of his long curly white fur to that of a beard, would pounce headfirst into the mild waves of the Adriatic. Jenna found the sea peaceful. Over time, she came to see that it was a moody creature. Some days the sea was angry, other days timid, and, Jenna swore this was true, on a perfect sunny day, Sometimes the sea seemed truly exuberantly happy. Just happy. Gandalf and the Adriatic were Jenna's two good friends. It should be noted that although Jenna worked in Portoroge, she lived 15 kilometers upstream in the slightly larger, less touristy town of Koper. Jenna liked the idea of living around normal Slovenes. She wanted to live like a native, get the full Slovenian experience. She wasn't sure she would get that living in a tourist town. Koper has historic roots, but in recent years, it served as the one large commercial port for the Slovenian people. In its own way, it's a lovely town. You shouldn't miss it. The flat Jenna rented was on the second floor of an old couple's beautiful home. Jenna rented her place for a steal. The view alone from her porch in the morning was worth every cent of rent. Coincidentally, Jenna's landlords could speak Slovene, Italian, and German fluently, but not a speck of English. It seemed to Jenna that every Slovene under 40 spoke English more fluently and poetically than she did. But the older generation, mm, not so much. It was nice to have Nates and Petra around, who also lived in Koper, just a block or so down the street, to help interpret the conversations with the landlords once in a while. Jenna, honestly, was trying to learn the language, but the going was tough. 
and it didn't help that 90% of the people she met could converse with her in English just fine. Learning a whole language just to communicate with the landlords wasn't the best motivation in the world. The best part of Jenna's new life, besides her raucous outings with old Gandalf the White, was the bike ride from Koper to Portoroge. She followed the seaside most of the way. The coastline was quite hilly, so the bike route was no walk in the park. It took some actual exertion. Jenna loved it. The physical exercise cleared her mind, washed it out like the pounding of the tide on the rocks. What a beautiful life. What a beautiful world. The first full day back in Slovenia after the wedding, Jenna worked a day shift. Biking back home around 9pm gave her a beautiful view of the sunset. Gorgeous. Really. Once home, although tired, she took Gandalf out for a leisurely stroll about the promenade and downtown Koper, and then watched an old Cary Grant movie in bed before calling it a day. Except the day itself wasn't calling it a day. It wasn't done with her. Jenna lay in bed, scratching her arm and hand. Instinctively, at first, and then chaotically, irrationally, scratching with fingernails out. So hard, she began to draw spurts of blood. Why did she have this hand? Miles Fa had cut it off way down in the hole on Pishtaco's Island. Why was it here? The whole biblical event with Pied Piper revealing himself as Adam and Mrs. Moose being the Lynx thing. All this, Jenna could accept. Though extreme, these stories, events, what have you, had real answers. Answers that Jenna could accept. But what Jenna couldn't find a way to accept was how she lost her hand. It had been severed with one fell swoop. How was it still here? Jenna threw herself out of bed. Thinking this rumbling might mean something divine, like a walk or a treat, Gandalf rose off his sleeping pillow and wagged his tail incessantly, thudding the wall with excitement. To the bathroom, Jenna ran. From the bathroom cabinet, Jenna grabbed a pill out of a medical bottle and scarfed it down without any water. Staring at her reflection then in the mirror, her eyes trained themselves on her hand, right where the sever should be. Rustling through her flat, eventually she found a sharpie and then returned to the bathroom. Painstakingly, she drew a line around her wrist, in permanent marker, right where the hand should detach, right where it shouldn't be. Why was it still here? Why was it still here? 
Why was it still here? Why was it still here? Why was it still here? Why was it still here? Why was it still here? Why was it still here? Manic thoughts overcame Jenna. Like a broken record, the question played out and played out. There was only one answer that made any sense. It shouldn't be. There should be no hand. Why was it still here? There should be no hand. Why was it still here? There should be no hand. Why was it still here? There should be no hand. Why was it still here? There shouldn't be a hand. Why was it still here? It doesn't have to be. Over and over again, Jenna's knees gave way. She crumpled to the tiled floor of the bathroom. Gandalf did his best to comfort Master, licking her face like it was hiding liters of honey just below the surface. If only he licks thoroughly enough. <laughs> Jenna couldn't help but smile. She put her arms around her furry beast. The two of them found comfort in each other's presence, and there, on the floor of the bathroom, Jenna found some rest that night. No work the next day. Jenna took Gandalf to the sea mid-morning and stayed there till evening when she shared Burek fast food with Petra over dinner. Night fell. Another old movie in bed. This one featuring Doris Day and... and that... that guy that used to always host the New Year's Eve celebration on TV? Clark. Dick Clark. Yeah, that's the one. Shortly after the film's conclusion, the scratching returned. Run to the bathroom, down a pill, stare at your bloodshot eyes, stand there, scratch at the marker line, scratch and scratch and scratch. Bloodshot eyes. Take another pill. Stare. Scratch. Why is it still here? There should be no hand. Why is it still here? There should be no hand. Why is it still here? There should be no hand. Why is it still here? It doesn't have to be. The girl, known as Jenna Finn, zombie walked to the kitchen. She pulled out a knife, walked back to the bathroom. Stare at your reflection, why don't you? What do you see? Bloodshot eyes. Knife to hand. Jenna pretends to cut her hand off at the wrist, slowly, right along the permanent marker line. Is this happening? Is this real? Why is it still here? Why does it remain? It shouldn't be here. Look at yourself, Jenna. Jen, Naime, whoever you are. Look at yourself. Do you like your reflection? This girl with a new nose and a returned hand, magically? What are you living for, new girl? Why are you still here? She was gonna do it. Do it. Do it. Blade to skin. Just cut. It'll be easy. Just do it. Do it. Do it. Why is it still here? Do it. She closed her eyes. In the darkness behind her eyelids, she found the answer. Yes. 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 I need to do this. I need to free myself. Jenna, free thing. She raised the knife. <laughs> Jenna goes to the front door, still clinging to the knife with her shaking hand. Nate is there, at the door. His mouth drops as he spies the bedraggled look on Jenna's face, and the knife in her hand. Hey, I couldn't sleep. Just came by to see if I could walk Gandalf. 
I would have snuck in, but I saw that your bedroom light was on. He did that sometimes. Jenna left her front door unlocked at night. Nate's had a pretty bad case of insomnia for months now, so he liked to come and take Gandalf out to calm his nerves in the middle of the night. Jenna was happy to oblige. Gandalf more so, but tonight was not like every night. Jenna, what are you doing with that knife? I... I... I think I need a stronger dosage. Nate's nodded. Call Lenore. Right now. It's... it's two in the morning, Jenna protested. It'll go straight to voicemail. Leave a message. Hello, Dr. Kotnik? It's not helping enough. I need my medication increased. (laughs) All music and sound effects in this episode and every other episode of Solve the World are appropriately attributed on DanteStack.com under our show notes page on Solve the World. Marco's story. You're George of the Jungle, Tarzan, the bushman from the outer reaches of the bush. Well, not really. You see yourself as normal, okay? More than normal, maybe. When you look in the mirror, you see in yourself the prototype of the modern, average man. A joke for all seasons. That is the way you see yourself at 17 years old. You have no reason not to. Here's the thing. You were light years ahead of your parents. While they weren't Amish, they sure looked darn near close. You remember mommy nearly having a heart attack when you bought cake mix at the store. My goodness, cake mix. What satanic chicanery is this? She never touched the stuff. You see, your family was a farming family. Hardcore farming. We didn't have a TV at home. We listened to football games on the radio. No internet, naturally. You worked the fields alongside Pop from the time you were five years old. You like it well enough. Sure, it's nice to be out in the sun. But the days last too long. That's just your two cents, you know? Too long of a days. You don't want to be a farmer. Too long. Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You managed to watch just a few movies growing up. Staying over at your friend's house, of course. The one bar in the village ten kilometers away had a TV, but but Pop didn't drink. Said his dad was an alcoholic, the no good came from that shine-schmear. Shine-schmear. That was his phrase for drunk. Shine-schmear. For instance, a drunkard had a shine-schmear on his face. That was how Pop described these things. All this to say that when you weren't working the fields, you were playing in them. The fields were your best friends. You played Star Wars day and night out there, in the fields. Star Wars, of course, being one of the few films you saw at your friend's house. Now, on the road to the hamlet where you'd sell excess crops at the market on Saturday mornings, 
there was a billboard. Most Saturdays, Pop was using the car, so you either hitchhiked a ride into town, or you walked. You remember it well, especially when walking. You'd have plenty of time to stare up at the thing. The billboard. Only one in town. Which, it must be mentioned, you'd never been to the city. The hamlet, the town, the place with the one bar, one restaurant, and one small hotel was the biggest mass of humanity you'd ever visited until you were 18. I know. So, this billboard, besides the radio and Star Wars, was your ticket to the big wide world. It was your window. Your one window. It was a Coca-Cola billboard. Simple. Just bright red, the font in white. All it said was, Coca-Cola. And then beside it, the word, always. Always. This message was a miracle. Always, always, Coca-Cola. Always is a long time, my friends. It was there, in the din of that message, that you saw your path in life. You had to do this. You had to tell the story. Spread the good news. Coca-Cola. Always. This led to the big fight. You're the eldest born son of a farmer. Pop's dad was a farmer, and granddad's pop was a farmer before him, and granddad's dad's pop before that. You are named Marco, just like your pop, and his pop before him, and his before his, and so on and so forth. Always. Always farmers. Always Marcos. But here was a revelation for you. Also, always Coca-Cola. What are you going to do with all these always colliding? You're going to move out. That's the decision. Go to the big city. You are going to be a billboard maker guy. Billboard man, they'll call you. Get him on the phone, they'll say. The billboard man. Before long, it'll be your furrowed brow winking at the children walking to the market from way up high on your billboard. That one word on your billboard encapsulating your ascension. Always. Always, billboard man. Always. Billboard man. That's the dream. You fight and fight and fight with your pop and mommy, and eventually, <sighs> you spoil Pa's dream of passing on the big family biz and getting to relax a bit so that you can become the always you've always wanted. You move to the big city to be a marketer. Marco the marketer. A madman, if you will. Problem is, you don't know anything about marketing, or society, or culture, or phones, or TVs, or any technology that doesn't involve husking a stock of corn. But this is not a story about how your life got turned upside down. I don't want to take a minute. You don't need to sit right down. Stories of overcoming cultural barriers are always so boring. With one exception. The bathroom culture. You had an outhouse growing up, okay? You're familiar with how toilets work. You're modern. At least enough to understand toilets. You've used them countless times. The toilet, my friends, is not the problem. Nor is the sink. You get sinks. Sinks are easy enough to understand. What turns out to be actually mind-numbingly befuddling is the urinal. You women have probably seen them on TV, right? Or stepped into the wrong bathroom a time or two. But here's the thing. They seem simple, but are quite intimidating. Let me give you the setup. You get a job as an unpaid intern. You're sleeping on a distant relative's couch, biking to work every morning, wearing the same slacks and button-down every day. Your only pair of nice pants. You walk into the bathroom. It's your first day. You know jack squat about anything. 
So you're trying to keep your mouth shut, just mosey about your business, do what people tell you to do, but this urinal, how does it work? You're unsure at first in the bathroom, whether it's for your pee or some sort of portable shower. Maybe it's a foot washer, or it's a foot washer and a hand washer simultaneous? A body part washer? Is it some kind of bidet? Maybe you still poop in it? The first time, you choose to ignore it. Run straight for the El Baño. Second time, you do likewise. But the third time, one of your many bosses, you're an intern, remember, so everyone's your boss, goes in the same time as you. He beelines for the urinal. You pretend to just have to wash your hands so that you can get a front row view of this thing in action. So you're watching him, right? He walks up to it, unzips his fly, and spits. As soon as he spits, he begins peeing. Okay, you're entranced, you're watching this. The boss catches you watching him. He smirks and says, Always gotta test the waters first, huh? Thinking back now, you assume he was making a comment about how you waited for him to pee first. That was what he meant by testing the waters. But at the time, you're quite sure of his meaning. He's teaching you. You're an intern, so he teaches you. That's a boss's job. Teach the interns. He's teaching you this. Before you pee into the urinal, you spit. That's the custom. You test the waters. You spit. That's how you test the waters. Always. You try it out. It's not bad, these peeing receptacles. You spit, free your stream, and have a good day. You come up with a thousand reasons in your head why one must spit before he pees into the white goblet. Maybe it's to test the device somehow? Maybe a movie star made it famous in some flick and, and, and now every man worth a darn follows suit? Whatever the reason, you're the newbie. You're not here to swim against the current. You're no salmon. Billboard man didn't make a living by ruffling bathroom feathers. You spit. That's what you have to do to fit in. Spit, my boy, spit. Always spit first. So, this is how life goes. If you urinate into the urinal, you must first spit. This habit becomes absolutely second nature to you. Gotta pee, better spit first. Urinal, unzip, spit, pee freely, repeat as necessary. Add to this the advent of never-ending cups of coffee available at the workplace, and bada-bing, bada-boom, you're spitting and peeing four, five, six times a day. Hallelujah! Three months into your cultural spit-fest, you realize something. When you have to pee, you salivate. Even before you stand up from your desk to go, your mouth is watering, filling up with the juice that enables your peeing. Remarkable. You've become Pavlov's dog. This isn't even analogous to that. It is that. You're salivating. When you gotta go, now you gotta spit. It's not just you spit for custom, you have to spit. The water's just seeping out of your mouth. It is overflowing. It is a gushing river. You have to let it go. Every time, it gets worse. You have to poop. Well, that's a job for old number two machine, Mr. Toilet. Not Sir Noble Urinal. You bandy on into the bathroom, past the urinal. You're about to drop your drawers and plop the kids off at the pool when you realize it. You're salivating. Before you can stop yourself, you spit into the toilet bowl. Pitooey! Plunk goes the little spitwad. Now you realize it. You've got a certifiable problem on your hands here. This seems like a high price to pay, this, this spontaneous salivating. But oh well, it acclimated you to the cultural zeitgeist. Men in the big city spit before they pee. When in Rome, always Coca-Cola. Then the big day comes. The boss's boss's boss. 
the CEO of the whole dang company, comes into the bathroom. You've been peeing for a good 10 seconds when he struts in. There's just two urinals in this place. So he stands beside you. First, you, you never realized how short he was. You've got a good five inches on him. You can't help but notice. You hear the sound of his tinkling, and it dawns on you, like tide rolling in at sunset. He didn't spit. The CEO didn't spit before he peed. Heavens to Betsy, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The mother effin' sky is falling from the mother effin' heavens. Is it a mistake? Did he forget to push out his mouthwater first? Is he too old to spit? Too feeble? Or is he trend-setting? Resetting the trend. Is that how these things work? The CEO spits, everyone follows, and now the CEO stops spitting and only the re-rees don't stop spitting? Who are you? A re-re or a follower of the new and groovy? Always Coca-Cola or never? There was only one way to know for certain. Again, he could be mistaken. Maybe he just forgot to spit this time. Accidents happen, right? You try to act casual. You smirk at him and parrot your boss's words. Always gotta test the waters first, huh? Excuse me, he says, looking at you rather disturbed. Uh-oh. You don't know what to do, so you dumbly repeat the line. Always gotta test the waters first, huh? He zips up and leaves without saying a word. Your mouth dries up. By the end of the week, you're out on the street. The CEO didn't want some weirdo working for him. Some urinal fetishist. Especially someone as expendable as an unpaid intern. <laughs> Funny, right? <laughs> Except you still can't pee or poop without spitting first. Some days you stand there, for minutes that feel like hours, trying to make Niagara Falls all on your own, your mouth flooding like the Titanic with liters of water, aching, aching to be released from your mouth. Your will does no good. If you want to get the job done, if you want to pee, you gotta spit first. Always Coca-Cola, my friends. Never doubt the power of marketing. Thank you. Thank you.